Take your Bibles. Let's open up to the book of Psalms. Today we'll be in Psalm 62, or 63. We read Psalm 62 in our call to worship. This July and August, I've been preaching several selected psalms. Um, In our first week together in July, I read out of Psalm 33, which is a universal call to worship. Psalm 19, we circled back and saw the revelation of God both in creation all the way to His Word. Psalm 37 gives us wisdom to fret not over evildoers, but to trust in the Lord. Um, Psalms is one of the most treasured books in all of the Scriptures. No matter what you're going through, you can open up the book of Psalms and see that there have been saints of old who experienced the same things that we have. And so it not only tells us of the story of God, um, just of His wondrous works from of old, but it also gives words to us, lyrics even, that we can have relationship to God and cry out to Him with anthems of faith and cries of lament and pleas for help and choruses of praise. The Psalms teach us how to humbly and honestly live before our God for all of our life to bless His name. Friends, this is what we read in Psalm 62. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him for God is a refuge for us. That's Psalm 62. Let us now read Psalm 63. This is God's holy word. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and glory Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down to the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God, and all who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is God's word, a psalm of David. In the wilderness of Judah. And that's where we're going to begin. Before we even get to verse 1, let's look at the title. In the wilderness of Judah, a psalm of David. At what point in David's life was he in the wilderness? Help us to understand this psalm. So where was he in the wilderness during this psalm? And there were two occasions primarily when he was on the run in the wilderness. There was the first time when he was just a shepherd a young man shepherding his father's flocks. And his brothers got passed over by the prophet. They were not to be the next king, but he was the younger son, the youngest son in the flocks of the fields, called back in, and he was anointed the next king of Israel. And he would actually come into King Saul's service. 
He would comfort him with music. He would slay Goliath, and the people's hearts would go to him. And so King Saul was jealous, and David was on the run to let King Saul live out his spiritless administration until the appointed time. That was one occasion. Perhaps that is the occasion of this psalm, but I think it's more this second occasion when he was fleeing his son Absalom in 2 Samuel 15-19. to Absalom was David's third son, not counting the son who died at birth of Bathsheba. Absalom had a half-brother, Amnon, and Absalom's full sister, Tamar, was raped by his half-brother, Amnon. David had many wives. It's not the Lord's design. And it just created a mess. And so Absalom's full sister, Tamar, was raped by Absalom's half-sister, half-brother, Amnon. And for two years, Absalom stirred in plotting how to avenge his sisters. And after two years, he did. He killed Amnon. And then Absalom himself went into fleeing as in flight away from his father David. And in these years, he grew jealous, power-hungry, and set up a rival kingdom, kingship, in a nearby city of Hebron. Listen to these words from 2 Samuel 15. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land, that every man with a dispute or a cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man would come in to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. And this is it. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to his servants, those who were with him in Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, for there will be no escape from us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring us down to ruin upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Do you see what's happened here within this not only this country, but now this family. We have a brother who's avenged his sister by killing a half-brother who's now fleeing and is now estranged from his father and is now setting up a rival kingdom against his father and winning the hearts of the people over to himself. Militarily, if Absalom had pursued David at this point, he would have won. But God caused the counselors to Absalom to advise delay. And so Absalom delayed. But by the time the battle happened, led by David's faithful general Joab, Absalom's army was wiped out, 20,000. So that Absalom himself was fleeing the battle on a donkey and got caught up in a tree with his hair. Can you imagine? He was riding and got stuck in a tree by his hair, which he had great pride in. Every year he would grow it out, and by the year's end, he would shave it. And it was just this, his hair was his pride. But pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. 
And this is the story of God's sovereignty over grievous and grievous sin, family divide, and great sorrow. So before we get to these words of verses 1, 2, and 3, know that this is the probable setting in which David sang this song. His son trying to destroy him so he could be king. Have you ever known such separation and sorrow in other families? You look at other families and it just seems to be a reality TV show set more for the afternoon. Consumption of just a train wreck. But perhaps that's your family. Have you ever known such grievous sin and such sorrow in your family? And I could tell you stories. This is a pulpit for corporate worship. You're not my counselor. So we all have stories. Sin promises satisfaction, and sin only brings sorrow. Sin, listen please, sin sends us into the wilderness. Adam and Eve walked with God. They knew daily, momentary, perfect communion with God in the Eden paradise. But their sin had them cast out of this garden paradise so that they were in the wilderness of a fallen world now. Prince Moses, who grew up in Pharaoh's courts, a son of Egypt, even though a Hebrew boy, would kill an Egyptian and fled to the wilderness. Israel would be delivered out of Egypt, come through a baptism through the Red Sea, would have covenant made at Mount Sinai, but because of their grumbling and complaining and sin, ran laps for 40 years in the wilderness. 1 Kings 19, the prophet Elijah destroyed the prophets of Baal, but because of Jezebel's sin in the land, he fled to the wilderness. The wilderness is a place of judgment. The wilderness is a place of escape. And we romanticize it. And I don't psychologize yourself on this. When we have such luxuries and comforts in our culture, in our day, the things that are afforded to us in our hands, in our homes, and yet we feel discontent, restless, even guilty. And so we long to go out into the wild and be wild at heart, off the beaten path, even off the grid. And so from our couches, we'll watch Man vs. Wild and Life Below Zero, feeling all stirred up and restless. Some of us may even take up hiking and you'll buy a lot of equipment. And you'll jump out and you go to McAfee's Knob and Sharp Top Mountain. That is not the wilderness. That is just getting outside, away from the screen, and seeing something living that God created. Living that God created. It did feel like wilderness a couple years ago when I went hiking with the Farrells down to Rock Castle Gorge in Floyd County. 
walking through tall grass, getting eaten up by chiggers. By the end, I get back to the camp, and I'm all swelled up, drinking Benadryl, being taken home out of the wilderness, back to my bed, trying to hike with Pastor Christian, talk about church merging, twisting my ankle on dragon's tooth, limping out of the wilderness. The wilderness is not a place of adventure for self-discovery. The wilderness is a place of struggle for survival. So let's quit romanticizing it or even idolizing it. By definition, the wilderness is wild, unruly, and dangerous. And for those with ears to hear, let me tell you a secret. This is all wilderness. This fallen world is wilderness. Our sinful life is wilderness. And you know it. We're not here just to try to find ourselves or discover ourselves. Everyone's here trying to survive. This is not paradise. You know it. Even though we're trying to tame the wilderness to make it a paradise, heaven on earth. So as much as we can have luxuries and comforts afforded to us, a masquerade at Walmart should remind you again, this is wilderness. And with those with ears to hear, let me also say this. If you want to get to the promised land, you're going through wilderness. How are you in survival mode today, though, in this wilderness? And this is where the Spirit let it apply to our hearts. Some of you are just trying to survive health-wise. You've got health, health ailments you're trying to survive. Financial pressures, you're just feeling your paycheck to paycheck barely making it. Workplace conflict, you really just don't want to go back tomorrow. You'd rather just go look in Indeed.com see if you can figure out a new place to work. Relational strains, just there's tensions, divides, estrangements. There's a soul despair some of you are feeling. Just the soul despair trying to survive in this wilderness. It's not paradise. This fallen world is wilderness. Our sinful life is wilderness. And how do we live in the wilderness? That's where we come to Psalm 63, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. One scholar says this, there may be no other songs that equal the outpouring of devotion. There may be other songs that, that equal the outpouring of devotion, but there's none that surpass it. This is unquestionably one of the most beautiful and most touching psalms in the whole Psalter. So this is how we're going to look at this psalm in three different sections, three different movements, both a seeking for God, a being satisfied in God, and then a vindication by God. Look with me to verses 1 through 4. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. This is not metaphor. This is actually what David is experiencing. He's in the wilderness of Judah, having on the run for his life from his son. And this desert topography is not only just him saying where he is, it now becomes metaphor. This is not just something good for an English class on a university campus. This was his real life, but his real life expressed his soul before God. This parched land, little to no life, and the life that is there has to uniquely adapt. Dusty, rocky, cracked. Just where it even looks like the soil itself just looks like a 
crocodile's back. We need basic things for survival. We need air, and we need food, and we need water, and we need shelter, and we need sleep. In extreme conditions, I've read, a human can survive three minutes without air, three hours without shelter in extreme conditions, three days without water, and three weeks without food. Water is a basic need of life. Without it, we become dehydrated. Without it, we die. So much of our body composition is water. But few of us experience thirst like this. This is a peculiar saying. We read it, but we've not known what it means to be a desert refugee like this. Right now, where you're sitting, think about if you are so parched, how quickly could you get to a drink? I mean, connection, we got some coffee there that will help. There's a, a water fountain over here outside this door. You got a couple quarters, you can get a drink out of the drink machine. If there's too much of a stampede here, we can go upstairs to another water fountain. Our access to water is unparalleled for so many generations and cultures past. And what it's taught us is to never know, never know thirst. Have we experienced thirst? Yes. Usually after a hard day's work, a good workout, out in the yard, and you feel thirsty, but like dry, just n thirsty and not knowing where the water will come from? And in such circumstances of wilderness survival, what would be our cry? David's cry is a prayer to God, a desire for God, a worship of God. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. God is God whether we acknowledge him or not. God is God and even the demons believe. But God, oh God, you are my God, David cries out. While he is suffering and fleeing and mourning, his first words in this psalm are, God, oh God, you are my God. Because in the wilderness, not when we live in our erections and illusions of paradise, in the wilderness we remember that God is God and that we are not. And in the wilderness, if we get honest with our soul, we'll learn to cry out to God. For where else will we go? And so David cries out to seek God. Earnestly I seek you. This word seek also is related to another word, the Hebrew noun for dawn. So those of you with the King James Version in your hand, it will say, early will I seek thee. Early when I seek thee, earnestly when I seek thee, it's a seeking after God. Either way, David is desiring to find God. But what an odd thing to say when David wrote these words in Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take to the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the seas, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Earnestly I seek you? Where can we go where God is not? And so it's not trying to find God where he is not. Earnestly I seek you is not trying to find the place where God is because he's not where I am. 
earnestly I seek you is, God, I want to know you now where I am, where you've always been. To earnestly seek God is to desire to know him, to love him. What is David praying for? Is he seeking God or seeking something from God? Is this David's cry, my soul thirsts for relief, my sorrow and remedy from my suffering? O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. David desires God. James Montgomery Boyce, who was a senior minister at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia from 1968 till the year of his passing in 2000, says there are three types of people in every Christian gathering. Those, number one, who are Christian in name only. Those are check-the-box Christians. If you're given a form, if you've got to have a religious identification, I'll check the box Christian. But really, what Sundays or even church involvement becomes for check-the-box Christians are, I will be a part of this because I feel like it, it either assuages my guilt before God, it makes me look good before others. I just need a little bit of religion to kind of fit into the rest of my life. Number two, Boyce would say this, Pastor Boyce would say that there's, there's those who follow Jesus but at a distance. Think of Peter and the other disciples at Jesus' arrest. Good intentions. Even stops and spurts of devotion. I read my Bible, I, I feel good, and then but then you'll spring up with life, but then the pressures of this world will like bake down on you and you'll like wilt away and, and there's this stop and go Christianity, this but keeping Jesus at a distance. Not really knowing about him, but not really knowing him. And Pastor Boyce would say this as the third grouping. There are those who in storm and in sunshine cleave to him and enjoy daily communion with him. These followers of Jesus want God and they want him so intensely because they know that he is and he alone will satisfy their deep longing for their souls. Which are you? Just need a little bit of religion? Check the box. Just kind of here just to get a touch point. Make an appearance. Number two, like trying, trying to figure this out, but in the trying, it's not even, it's like you're anti-grace because you're trying to work this out yourself. You're like, I just need to be more devoted. I try a little try harder. Are you, are you just, I have nothing. I don't bring anything except God gives me everything I have. And he is my daily joy. We, we don't live in three boxes. We live on spectrum. I understand but let it convict our souls by the Spirit. If it's number one or two that we feel more identified with, then these words in Psalm 63 are going to seem strange. If it's number three, you're like, these words are life. Someone else gets it. I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. He is in the Judean wilderness, not in the capital city. But he remembers. Oh, he would love to build a house to the Lord. The Lord's not going to let him do it. But David was the one who brought the tabernacle into Jerusalem. And how did he do it? 2 Samuel 6. 
David danced before the Lord with all of his might. David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. This was David's joy to bring the manifest presence of God to the capital city of Jerusalem. God is everywhere. Where will we go from your spirit? You're everywhere. But the manifest presence of God for the worship of God, it was his joy just to dance undignified to bring it to Jerusalem. And David remembers, even on this day in the wilderness, this was his joy. He's not there. He's on the run in the wilderness here. He misses home. He misses the comforts of home. As many of you do when you're away from home for many days or even weeks. But what is his prayer? God, I miss your worship. I remember your power and glory and the worship of you. Look at how David expresses his desire to worship God with all of himself all the time. Look at even the the sense of time in the past. I looked upon you in the sanctuary. He has a past remembrance. He has a, a present affirmation. Your steadfast love is presently better than life. We all want a sense of purpose. We all want meaningful work. We all want close relationships. We all appreciate material blessings. But your steadfast love is better than life. God's covenant love, which this word is, his covenant steadfast love is better than life. Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, says this, life is dear, but God's love is dear. To dwell with God is better than life at its best. Life is shared by the lowliest animals, but the, lovely, the loving kindness of the Lord is a special portion for God's chosen. Why do we spend so much of our time, our money, our efforts, our energies, our thoughts, trying to find satisfaction in that which does not bring it? When God's perfect, never-ending love is offered to us as grace from Jesus Christ. This was his present affirmation. But he even has future hope. My lips will praise you. I will bless you. I will lift up my hands. And with these words, do you not only see it's not only the past, present, future, it's also all of himself. I've looked, I've beheld his eyes, my lips, praise. I lift up my hands. In the next verses, my soul, my mouth, my memory. This is a wilderness refugee. And look at his words. It's not like God fix it. It's like, God, you're everything. Where else am I going to go? You are everything. Family turmoil, kingdom threats, physical suffering, daily survival, and yet his prayer is not seeking relief or remedy. It's seeking God. And so do we so desire God. Please remember, David's in the wilderness. He's now had a promise that one of his sons would sit on the throne. One of his sons will build a a house for him, and and Solomon would build a physical house for him, the temple. But there's going to come another son of David who would have a forever kingdom and build the forever house for God. That son of David 
would actually be the Son of God in our human flesh. Does David get that? That from his line, one of his descendants would actually be God incarnate. And yet, look at how he cries out in desire for God. The confidence, the trust, the emotion, how he worships God. And yet, we are the ones with the revelation of Jesus Christ. We know God has come to us in the flesh. The Savior who suffered for our sin. The King who resurrected and now reigns on high as Lord of all and coming back one day to make all things new. We know this from God's Word. And yet David's devotion pales ours. How can that be? He did not see. He had faith with God. He had covenant relationship with God. And yet we have the revelation of Jesus Christ. I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receive. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. How much more will the Heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? O God, my God, earnestly I seek you. And Jesus says, seek. Ask. Knock. Man, we give good gifts to our kids. Man, this, imagine the joy of God our Father to give us the Holy Spirit. We've not known thirst. We just sang, May I Drink from No Other Fountain, a couple songs ago. Look at verses 5 through 8. He moves from seeking to expressing satisfaction to God. These are two pictures of satisfaction which God, which are very curious here to be in the wilderness right now to draw up these images. Not only is God known in the sanctuary, but he's known in the ordinary graces of life. Please don't come here just on Sunday thinking this is where you get to know God only. I want you to know God tomorrow when you break bread. I want you to know God Tuesday evening when you lay your head down. And so God... David gives two pictures here of a table and a deep sleep on his bed. My soul will be satisfied us with the fat and rich food, and my mouth will be praised with joyful lips. These are strange words to us. Because what would be your favorite meal? And imagine what your favorite meal would be in your remembrance, even your sensory memory as you're there, thirsty and hungry and wilderness wandering. And yet David said, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. We are a culture obsessed with food. We got the new next diet, paleo, keto, whole 30, vegan, everything. Else. And yet David's saying, give me the fat and rich stuff. The fatness and the marrow in the King James. This is royal banquet. He's hungry and thirsty. And yet he says, even though my, bot, my flesh faints, I want you. What is he going to sleep on? There's no sleep number. There's no my pillow. He's in the wilderness. When I remember you upon my bed, meditate you on the watches of the night, his thoughts are upon God because God has been his help. And in the shadow of his wings, he sings for joy. This is what one Anglican cleric and English writer says. As the spirit and soul of the whole book of Psalms is contracted into this psalm, 
So the spirit and soul of this whole psalm is contracted into this verse. So for at least for that writer, that commentator, he says he looks at verse 7 as almost the summary verse of the entire Psalter. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. Psalm 57, a midcom of David, when he fled from Saul in a cave. That's the title. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for you alone my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. Also in the sanctuary there, the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, have two cherubim over the top. The wings of the cherubim over top the Ark of the Covenant. In the shadow of our wings we take refuge. The presence of God. My soul clings to you. My right hand upholds me. Your right hand upholds me. This is a holding fast. This is attaching, being glued together. This is what you're to be, husband and wives in Genesis 2. A husband is to hold fast to his wife, and they are to become one flesh. Cling to your wife. Become one flesh. This is the same word. Ruth. Ruth clung to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Uh, your people are going to be my people. Your God's going to be my God. There's this clinging. And David clings to God. Joshua would tell the people entering into the promised land, only be careful to love the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways, to keep his commandments, and to cling to him. Serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Cling to God. If we're not clinging to God, we do not know him. Because if we know him, where else would we go? And so in wilderness wandering, with the family falling apart, with the kingdom at threat, David clings to God. Look at verses 9, 10, and 11 in this last movement. Some commentaries complain about this. They said, man, we just took a very beautiful psalm of David and somebody must have just added some really nasty verses. This sounds mean. We're talking about God destroying those who oppose, given over to the power of the sword. They shall become a portion for jackals. Oh, we just took this beautiful psalm and now we're going to end it on this note? Welcome to the wilderness. This is a wilderness psalm. So as much as the Lord meets us in our soul, we're left with the realities of this world. And David's trust in his God's steadfast love, which is better than life, God's love, which is all-satisfying, and God, who will vindicate. Leave it to God. Vengeance is the Lord's. The wrath of God will avenge all his enemies. Vengeance is the Lord. And look at verse 11. The king and all his faithful followers will open their mouths to rejoice in God. But the liars will have their mouths shut by God. This is why I do think, verse 11, why this is, why he's on the run from Absalom. He is the king now at this point. One day, one day, all blasphemy, all lying, all slander, all persecution, all unrighteous anger, one day, all of this will be silenced. And one day, the only speech that we will have, the only communication we have will be that which is pure and lovely to the praise of God forever in Christ's presence. 
That's coming one day. That's the promised land beyond this wilderness, friends. So what does Psalm 63 teach us about life and faith today? I want you to know, please, this world is wilderness. I know, Derek, but I thought we were going to get baptized. I was going to get baptized in the church, and it was going to be all good. Everything was going to work out. Yeah, Israel got baptized in the Red Sea and got led into testing in the wilderness and failed and did laps and received judgment. But then comes the one true son of Israel. The one true son of Israel who, who comes and out of Egypt he called his son and he himself was baptized in the Jordan River though he had no sins to confess of. And out of the river, immediately the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tested for 40 days and 40 nights. This is not paradise. And God so loved this world to send His beloved Son into this wilderness so that we can then know and follow Him to a promised land. We're looking forward to a better land, to a city whose foundations has a designer and builder as God. And we await our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, to come to make all things new for eternal life with Him. But until that eternal day, how are you going to live in this wilderness? Learn from David. Even from David before the revelation of Jesus Christ in full. We learn to pray that God himself will satisfy, not change circumstances. God's steadfast love is better than life. Please be honest. The Psalms are so honest. Be honest today before God by the Spirit. How are you in survival mode? How are you at the end of yourself? And God is a big enough God and He wants us to bring our petitions and thoughts and to Him and be honest. Don't try to be wholeheartedly Righteous and, well, I guess I can't really be honest with my request. You can be honest, but beyond the request of just, God, do you know me in my circumstances? Is God all satisfying for us? We can try to survive this thing in our flesh. But we'll only thrive when we worship God in spirit and in truth. With all of who we are at all times. G. Campbell Morgan wrote this about this psalm. Two things are necessary for such triumph. And it's the very first verse of the psalm. Do you have this relationship? Oh God, you are my God. And then do we have this seeking? Earnestly, early, I seek you. Knowing and following Jesus is the only way we'll shine his light. And so on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up, cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has told, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about his Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. you have ears to hear today? Holy Spirit, come. Jesus, you are my God. 
earnestly we seek you. Let's pray.